our generation is not the first generation to wonder whether Jesus was a real person, whether he really claimed to be God, and whether he really rose from the dead. Our generation is not the first generation to express concern with the Christian movement or to try to go after that movement by discrediting its founding figure. Our generation is not the first generation to feel threatened by the exclusive claims of the followers of Jesus or to feel personally offended by what Christians stand for. Is the world and the people in it really as bad as those Christians make it sound? Are other world religions really as bankrupt as Christians claim them to be? Is it reasonable to believe that someone could rise from the dead? Aren't these Christians just a bunch of rebels? A bunch of intolerant and narrow-minded simpletons? And a threat to the public welfare? Friends, our generation is not the first generation to ask these questions. Our generation is not the first generation to search for the historical Jesus. These questions and concerns have been present from the very beginning. Christianity has been on trial pretty much from the moment Jesus began traveling around and teaching people about the kingdom of God. And these are the questions and the concerns that we will take up as we spend the next year or so studying the gospel of Luke together. To help us get acquainted with Luke, who who takes up these questions for us, I'd like to give you an overview of Luke's book this morning by addressing the following issues that you can see on your outline. Who wrote the book of Luke? What makes his gospel unique? What does this suggest about his purpose? And how ought we to use this book? So I'd like to introduce you to this book. Before I do, let me pray and ask for God to help us as we come to his word. Our Father in heaven, we stand in awe before you as the God of God's the Lord of Lords. Please help us now to understand your word. Lord, we cannot understand it apart from the help of your Holy Spirit. Please grant us more of your spirit that we might be filled with him, that he might illuminate your word to us. Help us to grasp this morning the big picture of this book of Luke, uh, that it might shape our lives and would help us as we read it and as we dive into it in this next sermon series. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, I want to address who wrote the book of Luke. Until the last few centuries, there was no real dispute over the fact that the book was written by a man named Luke. Documents from the the mid-2nd century and beyond attribute this book to the man named Luke and To be frank, there is no good reason to doubt the testimony of the early church that the book was written by Luke. If you'd like more of that evidence, I'd be happy to to talk to you uh, to later to to give you some specific evidence why they testified to that. 
So I want to talk about this morning, who was Luke and why does it matter? Paul lists Luke among his non-Jewish co-workers in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. We learn that Luke alone stuck with Paul to the end of his ministry. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Paul says that this is his last letter. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. So we know that Luke was a close companion of Paul to the very end of his life and his ministry. He was a Gentile and not a Jew. In Colossians, he groups him with the workers who were not of the circumcision. And he was an educated man. He was a physician, beloved to Paul. This is who it is that wrote this book. Second, what makes his gospel unique? What makes it unique? There's a reason that God gave us four Gospels, four accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. So we ought not to treat them the same or assume that they're all doing exactly the same thing. Now, there are two obvious things that make Luke different from the other three Gospels. And there are many more subtle things as well, but I'll highlight only one of those subtle things this morning. First, the two obvious things are that Luke is the only Gospel with a preface that directly addresses its audience. And, and second, Luke is the only gospel with a sequel. These things are really loud in your face. We can't ignore them. These are obvious differences that are unique about Luke. First, let's look at the preface where Luke directly addresses his audience. No other gospel has anything like this. Luke chapter 1, and I'll dig into these first four verses a bit with you. <clears throat> Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is Luke's preface. Luke writes here in, in the first person. He says, it seemed good to me also uh, to write an orderly account to you. And he wants to make a few key points to his reader, who's named Theophilus, in verse 3. Uh, let me explain his, his, what he wants to Theophilus to know here. In verse 1, he tells us that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things. And these are things which have been accomplished among us. And that Greek word for accomplished could be translated as fulfilled. In fact, just a few verses later, the ESV will go ahead and translate it as fulfilled when the angel speaks to Zechariah. These are the things which have been fulfilled. They've been accomplished among us. These are things which have happened in close awareness of, response to, and completion of God's promises of the past. That's what Luke's wrapping up in this word. These are the things that bring to accomplishment, bring to fulfillment, all that God has spoken in the past. In verse 2, he says, we've heard about them from two groups of people. We've heard about them from eyewitnesses 
and from ministers of the word. The eyewitnesses are those who, who actually saw what happened. And the ministers of the word are those who have believed it and have propagated it. And we've heard about this from them. Many have undertaken to compile this narrative. And so in, in verse 3, he says, It seemed good to me also to write my own narrative of these things. I have followed these things for quite some time, which qualifies me to write about it. I followed them closely. What he's telling us is his research methods. He has researched all of those eyewitness accounts. He has spoken to those ministers who care the most about it, who have cared about preserving it. And he's now compiling all of this eyewitness testimony into one place, into an orderly account for you, Theophilus. And he's doing this, verse 4, so that you may have certainty concerning what you've been taught. In other words, you can be confident of what you've heard about these things, about the Christian movement. You see, with this book, Luke is providing evidence through both Christian teaching and eyewitness testimony that he has compiled, he's researched and compiled, and he's presenting this evidence that the Christian movement is legit. This is the real deal. You can be certain that that these are the things that have been accomplished, they've been fulfilled among us. You can be certain of this from the evidence within this book. That is Luke's direct address. That's his preface. Neither Matthew nor Mark nor John have anything like this. The closest is John's purpose statement, which comes at the end of his gospel. It's not a a preface up front to introduce the book, but at the very end, John says these things in his book were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But John never identifies his exact audience, and it's kind of tucked into his conclusion in the book. And he doesn't describe his research methods for how he got his stuff, probably because he was one of those eyewitnesses himself. But John's different in those ways. So the first thing that makes Luke's gospel unique in an obvious way is this preface with the direct address. The second obvious distinctive about Luke's gospel is that it's the only gospel with a sequel. The sequel to Luke is the book of Acts, also in the New Testament. If you look at the first verses of Acts, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Acts, that's his second book. He refers to his first book written to the same guy, Theophilus. And those verses of Acts then move right into Jesus' final instructions to those he had taught. And then it gives us 28 chapters of their adventures. And so we should take note of these two things. Luke's preface with direct address and his sequel. Both of them are really important clues to help us figure out why Luke is writing this book. And in particular, we need to understand why he's writing to this guy Theophilus. And why he did these two books, we have to read the two books together. We can't separate them and and treat them as totally separate things. They're two volumes of one work. Now, 
among the more subtle things that make Luke's gospel unique, we could talk about some of Luke's thematic emphases. What are, what are themes that he focuses on through the book? We'll get to that through the sermon series. This morning I want to point out something that's, that's pretty straightforward, though it, it's subtle. You might not notice it at first, but it sets Luke apart. And that is the fact that Luke's gospel is the only gospel that doesn't mention Jesus in the very first verse. Look at Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. And a few verses later, he does clarify that the Word is Jesus. So, I've already read Luke 1, 1 to 4 to you, and there is no mention of Jesus in those four verses. In fact, Jesus is not mentioned at all in Luke until verse 31 of chapter 1. And then it's only in predictive dialogue, where the angel tells Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus doesn't show up directly as a character in the narrative until chapter 2, verse 7, where she gave birth to her firstborn son. Why does this matter? This is a very subtle thing. But the point is that each of these gospels, every gospel writer clearly indicates his subject matter from the very beginning. Verse 1. They want to persuade you of something. They want to move you to belief or action of some sort. And the subject matter of Matthew, Mark, and John very clearly, is Jesus Christ himself. Who he was, what he came to do, why you can trust him. That's what they are focused on. But the subject matter of Luke is slightly, subtly different. Luke's subject matter is more about the larger Christian movement. In verse 1, the subject matter that Luke introduces is the things that have been accomplished among us. In verse 4, he calls it, the things you have been taught. Now, of course, you can't discuss the Christian movement without first discussing the person of Jesus Christ. And so Luke's first volume, which we call Luke, will focus on the person of Jesus Christ. But we should see that the Gospel of Luke is actually not so much a biography of Jesus like the other three Gospels are, it's more like the first part of a two-volume history of the entire Christian movement. Yes, volume one focuses on the founder of that movement, but volume two focuses on the followers and what they did with it. And the sum of the parts, the two volumes together, is bigger than the life of Jesus. The sum of the parts, it's, it's about the entire movement. It's about this Christian movement which Jesus began. Now, I'm starting to creep into my third point this morning, so let me just shift there. What do these unique things suggest about Luke's purpose in writing? In addition to the, those three things that make his gospel unique, let me point out a few more clues. Let me give you three additional clues that will help us to see his purpose. First, we should talk about the identity of Theophilus, the recipient of this two-volume work. In Luke 
Chapter 1, verse 3, Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. I've written an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And you should know that this, this term, most excellent, this title, this address, occurs only four times in the New Testament, in this verse, in Luke chapter 1, and then three times in the book of Acts. So only Luke, he's the only writer of the New Testament who uses this term. Look at Acts chapter 23, verse 26, where a Roman centurion uses the term in a letter addressed to His Excellency, the Governor Felix. It's the, it's the same Greek word there, His Excellency. In Acts chapter 24, verse 2, uh, a Jewish prosecuting attorney uses that term in court to address the judge, the most excellent Felix. And in Acts 26, verse 25, the incarcerated Paul, during a court appearance, uses it to address the judge, the most excellent Festus. So you see, this term, most excellent, is a form of address comparable to someone today saying, Your Honor. It's a title for a judge. It's, it's a title for a Roman official acting in a judicial capacity. That's the first clue. Here's the second clue as to Luke's purpose. His treatment of Roman officials all throughout his two books. All throughout both Luke and Acts, the narrative puts a rather positive spin on the character or the respectability of Roman officials and Roman offices. For example, in Luke alone of the four Gospels, you do not have any scene with Roman soldiers mocking Jesus, spitting on him, blindfolding him, teasing him about being a prophet, putting a purple robe or a crown of thorns on him. You don't have that in Luke at all. You have Herod's soldiers mocking Jesus, but they were Jews, not Romans. In Luke alone, Pontius Pilate does not look like a buffoon at the trial of Jesus. In fact, he repeatedly and somewhat obsessively and respectably declares Jesus innocent. He actually tries really hard to release Jesus. It's only when the mob almost breaks out into an uncontrollable riot that he hands Jesus over to be crucified. In addition, Roman officials are presented with dignity all through the book of Acts. And the very first Christian believer, who is not either Jewish or related to Jews, is a Roman army officer. Luke is far more positive in his portrayal of the Roman authorities than is any other gospel narrator. And this is a major clue as to Luke's purpose. Let me give you a third and final clue, which is that the book of Acts has an exceptionally odd ending. Very odd ending. Paul has been taken into custody. He's been transported to Rome to await trial before Caesar. And in the last chapter of Acts, Paul arrives at Rome. He meets with the Jews there to tell them about Jesus. They 
many of them reject him, he connects their rejection to a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. He declares that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles who will listen. And then we're simply told that Paul preached the gospel while under house arrest for two years without hindrance and with all boldness. And I could talk about the whole shipwreck narrative in the chapter before that, chapter 27. The way this book ends, it's very strange. From a narrative point of view, it doesn't really have a significant climax or resolution. It just trails away in the last chapter or two. It does not have the kind of closure or conclusion we would expect for something that has been carefully researched and meticulously presented the way Luke has set out to do. So where do all these clues take us? What can we posit as Luke's purpose in writing? Let me talk about his purpose, letter B. Putting all of this evidence together, the things that make him unique and the additional clues, I lay before you the following proposal. That as Luke writes, his close friend and mentor, Paul, is still under house arrest awaiting his trial before Caesar in Rome. And Luke writes this two-volume history of the Christian movement to serve as something like a legal brief, which he submits to Theophilus, a Roman official having some role with respect to Paul's trial. Perhaps he was an investigator or a lower court judge before Paul went to Caesar. And Luke writes this in order to help exonerate Paul from the charges laid against him. Because with Paul on trial, Christianity is on trial. Theophilus has been taught about Christianity. He's learned something about it. He knows something of the movement. He has a basic familiarity with it. But Luke wants him to have greater certainty regarding the facts and the evidence in favor of the legitimacy of this movement. Now, I'm, I must confess, I did not invent this theory of Luke's purpose. I did not come up with this or pull it out of a hat. Numerous scholars convinced me of it. So I'm not particularly clever. Others have helped to show me this way. But this theory does the best job accounting for all the evidence and all the clues within Luke and surrounding it in the early church, surrounding the books of Luke and Acts, such that I've been convinced it's the most plausible theory of Luke's purpose, why he's writing. Just to go back over the, uh, or you could go back over those three unique features and the three additional clues I mentioned, and it all makes sense in light of this purpose. For example, the, the weird ending. If the second volume simply ends in real time with up-to-the-minute accuracy regarding Paul's status awaiting trial, it explains why there's nothing conclusive at the end. It just brings us up here, and here's where we are today. Here's how we got where we are today. And I could go over the rest of the evidence and other evidence that I didn't have time to present to you today if you want to talk later. Now, let me say a few things about why Paul is on trial. What is Paul being charged with? And why would these charges, if prosecuted and convicted, be a threat to the entire Christian movement? Luke does us the favor of giving us five scenes near the end of Acts where Paul explicitly defends himself. He's defending himself against the accusations. Chapters 22, 
23, 24, 25, 26. Five chapters in a row. And in the third defense, the middle one of the five, we are told exactly what the charges were that had been laid against Paul. Here are the words of the prosecuting attorney whom the Jewish leaders had hired in his formal accusation against Paul while in court before the most excellent Festus. Acts 24, verses 5 and 6. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So we see here that they had essentially three charges against Paul that Luke is trying to exonerate him from all throughout. Three charges. First, verse 5, he stirs up riots all over the world. In other words, he is a disturber of the Roman peace. He is a threat to the Pax Romana. Second, the end of verse 5, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. In other words, he is leading a new and different religion. That's what they mean by sect. He's not part of us. This group is a sect. It's a separate group. They are not a branch of Judaism. He's starting something that has nothing to do with us. And the third charge in verse 6 is that he tried to profane the temple. In other words, not only is he not an Orthodox Jew, but he also he is a severe threat to the heart of Judaism altogether. He threatened our temple. He profaned it. He tried to profane it. These are the charges laid against Paul. And if he is convicted, it could be severely damaging to the entire Christian movement, the early Christian movement. Why? Why would this be so damaging? First, because if Paul is a disturber of the Roman peace then the same could be said of all Christians. If they disturb the peace and are simply troublemakers, we ought to put an end to it. Second, if the Christians are a sect foreign to Judaism, then they must not be granted the same religious exemptions that Jews are granted. So they're saying they have nothing to do with Judaism. And to understand the severity of this charge, you need, to under, you need to know that across the Roman Empire, it was mandatory in the first century to worship Caesar and to offer sacrifices to him. There was only one people group in the entire empire granted an exception to that requirement. Guess who it was? The Jews. And that was because the Jews had revolted too many times whenever the purity of their worship was close to being threatened. So Rome had learned to leave them alone in their religion and grant them religious freedom. So please understand, when the Jews accuse Paul of not being truly Jewish, this religious exemption by Rome is being called into question for all Christians everywhere. The third reason, the third, the reason why the third charge be so damaging is because if Paul and the Christians with him did in fact defile the temple in Jerusalem, if they profaned it, this would be grounds according to Roman law for the death penalty. Romans allowed the death penalty for those who would mess with the Jewish religion. 
And so all through Luke's narrative, we will, will see Luke address these very charges, both directly and indirectly. All through the way, he will make the case that Christianity is not a disturbance to the Pax Romana. In fact, Christianity is deeply concerned with the improvement and the welfare of society. And in addition, Luke will show that the Jews are far more disturbing to the peace and the good order than the Christians are. With respect to the second charge, he will show that Christianity is not a sect or a religion different than Judaism. Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Christianity is more closely connected to the Old Testament scriptures than modern Judaism is in the first century. Christianity is the proper and the climactic outworking of everything Judaism was meant to be. Christianity is deeply rooted in the Old Testament scripture and the promises of God to Israel. Like he says in verse 1 of his book, these are the things that have been fulfilled among us. And he will make the case through both books that it is actually the Jews and not the Christians who have abandoned the Old Testament roots. With respect to the third charge, Luke will make the case that it is true that Christianity is a threat to Judaism, but not in the way that the Jews alleged. Luke will go out of his way to show how Paul never defiles the temple. In fact, no Christian ever defiled the temple. In fact, he, he will start the, the opening ch- scene that will we'll study next week, takes place in the temple. He's making this case to show that the followers of Jesus rigorously followed, Paul especially, rigorously followed the temple's practices whenever he was in Jerusalem among the Jews. But there is a different threat to Judaism to consider in Luke's books. And it's one that the accusing Jews didn't have in mind, but it's it's the threat that those Jews who will not get with God's program, those who will not receive Jesus as Lord, those who will not recognize their own God when he visits them, they will suffer a deeply devastating ending. They will lose their precious temple altogether. They will suffer a fate worse than the ancient pagan nations, ancient and modern pagan nations surrounding Israel. They will become like their own sacrifices with their blood spilling out. And in Luke, Jesus weeps over this coming doom for the Jews time and again because they are rejecting him. This book contains a severe warning for the Jewish people who will not recognize the salvation of God when they see it. So Luke will say, yes, this movement is a threat to the heart of Judaism, but not in a criminal way. Innocent to the charge of profaning the temple, but guilty of the charge of being a threat to Judaism because we want them to have life. We want them to find the truth. At the end of Acts, actually, Paul says that he does not want to be a threat to the Jews. In chapter 28, verse 20, when he meets with the Jews in Rome, he, he says, I didn't try to cause this trouble. There's nothing to these charges. And he says, for this reason, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So it appears that Luke's purpose 
is to provide carefully researched eyewitness evidence to exonerate Paul and therefore Christianity from all criminal charges. In a nutshell, that's his purpose. Let me talk very briefly about the map of Luke, the the structure of the book. We'll make sure to get a map of Luke into the the bulletins for you as we go so that you can sort of know where we go uh, and how we got there. But uh, Luke will make his case in the first four chapters roughly. He'll start with Jesus' credentials. And then in chapter 4 to 9, he'll move to Jesus' fundamentals, his basic teaching and his values. And then then he moves to the goals that Jesus has for his kingdom in chapters 9 through 19. And finally, 19 to 24, he'll present Jesus' vindication, where Judaism will be shown to be guilty, but Jesus will be innocent that he is the salvation of Israel who arrives in power by the end of the book. And, and Luke wants to show that Jesus' work and his kingdom are so are deeply rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. At the very end, Jesus will have to explain the Old Testament in detail even to his own followers who were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. So we'll see his credentials, his fundamentals, his goals, and then his vindication. Those are the four sections of Luke. The main point of Luke, which we'll highlight throughout the sermon series, is the hope of Israel, God's plan of salvation for the world, has arrived in Jesus. The hope of Israel, God's plan of salvation for the world, has arrived in Jesus. And we'll come back to that often through the book. Now, how ought we to use this book? Let me end with some application. This morning, I mostly want you to grasp the book's big picture. And if you get that and you stand in awe of the God who gave us such a written defense of Christianity, you're in awe of him, that will be application enough. But here are a few more things for you to consider. If you are not yet a Christian or you're not sure, please pay close attention to the eyewitness testimony of this book. Feel free to weigh and evaluate the evidence presented here to consider whether these things about Jesus are in fact true. And if they are true, consider how they might flip your world upside down. That's what Luke is after. For the children, for the young people here, or even those who who are young in the Christian faith, Luke is for you too. You're growing up in this church. You're hearing a lot of teaching about Jesus and about his kingdom and how to be a part of his people. This book of Luke can give you certainty. It can help you to be sure about the things that you've been taught. Please check out this book. Read it with us while we preach through it. Let your parents know or let me know what questions you have as you read, as you think about Jesus and following him. We'll do our best to try to answer those questions in a satisfying way. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts about all of this. It's okay for you to wonder whether all this Jesus stuff is really true. We want to help you work through those questions in a reasonable and a satisfying way. For those of you who already trust Christ and who walk with him, please know this, that the confidence of your faith has very little to do with how strongly you believe it. 
Sometimes we think, that's what makes me confident. I just believe it strongly. But friends, such strong opinions will come and go with life's experiences. Instead, your confidence should not have to do with the strength of your belief. It should have everything to do with the truth that God has preserved for the ages. The truth that God was willing to go on record saying, most likely even in the Roman court system. The Lord went on record here, and there's our confidence with his truth that he's preserved. Make sure you know the facts, you understand the facts, and you grasp how these things connect to what God has promised in ages past. This is why we spent the last year in Isaiah. Our faith didn't start from scratch in the New Testament times. We need to see how rooted this faith is in what God has been up to from day one and all through the Old Testament period. And Luke will make many of these connections for us. Next week, we'll dive into the first part of chapter one. Perhaps you could please read verses 5 to 25 to prepare. And as you read it, you might want to consider why, why does Luke open with this scene he opens with? He's giving us a narrative of this history of the Christian movement. And uh, keep in mind that Paul's chief accusers were Jewish priests concerned with Paul's profaning of the temple. And that might help give you some historical context when you come to read that opening scene. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us Luke so that we can know Jesus. Thank you even more for giving us Jesus. And thank you for helping us to uh, have the opportunity to, to have certainty of the things we've been taught, to see how, how, how this, this Christian movement is rooted in what you've been up to since day one and how this is a part of what you've done and, and this is not a... A, a, a narrow-minded, intolerant way of life, but this is about life for the world and the benefit and welfare of society. Help us to love you as we trust in Jesus that we might find this confidence not in ourselves, but in what you have told us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.